Welcome to this OLTV podcast series titled The Mystical Theology of the Eastern Church Fathers by Metropolitan Callistos of Diocleo. The second episode of 10 is on the teachings of Evagrius of Pontus. Today, in the second of my talks about mystical theology, I want to look at one particular figure, Evagrius of Pontus. And as a subtitle for the talk, we might say, The Vision of the Intellect. And in my next talk, the third in the series, I want to talk about a text that is contemporary with Evagrius, the homilies of Macarius. Often Evagrius and Macarius are contrasted with each other as representing two different currents in Eastern spirituality. In fact, as we shall discover, the difference between them is not as great as is often suggested. In the case of Macarius, we can give us the subtitle, The Perception of the Heart. These two figures, Evagrius and Macarius, coming from the late fourth century, occupy a dominant position in the history of Eastern Christian spiritual theology. First then, let me say a few words about the life of Evagrius so we can make the personal connection. He was probably born in 345 or 346. As a young man, he had personal connections with the Cappadocian Fathers. St. Basil the Great ordained him reader, and St. Gregory of Nazianzus ordained him deacon. And he went with Gregory of Nazianzus to Constantinople in 381 to the Second Ecumenical Council, as it later came to be regarded. While in Constantinople, there came a decisive turning point in his life. And this is related to us by Palladius, who was a disciple of Evagrius, and says that he had the story from Evagrius himself. In the imperial capital, Evagrius became involved in an affair with a wealthy married woman. And he had a dream. He dreamt that he was in a place of confinement in prison. And in his dream, he felt an intense anxiety 
that something dreadful was going to happen to him. A friend came into the cell where he was and said to him, uh, Deacon, what are you doing here? And Evagrius said in his dream, I don't want to be here at all. I long to escape and get out. Do you really? said the friend. And he went off and came back with the gospel book. And he said, if you really want to leave, swear on the gospel book that when I release you from this prison, you will immediately leave the city of Constantinople. So Evagrius swore on the gospel book. The dream ended, he woke up. At first he said to himself, it was only a dream. But then he said, even if it was only a dream, yet I promised on the gospels that I would leave Constantinople immediately. And that is what he does. He takes ship and goes down to Palestine and he goes to the monastery on the Mount of Olives where Melania is the Mother Superior. And while he's there he falls ill. And after time uh, Melania calls him and says, um, Deacon, I'm not happy about this illness of yours. It must have some special cause. Tell me what has gone wrong with your life. That's a very interesting example from early sources of a woman acting as spiritual guide. And so if Agrius uh, tells her the story of the in relationship that he had in Constantinople with the married woman and how he fled and has come here to Jerusalem. Very well, says Melania, uh, now you must become a monk. You must go to Egypt and live in the desert. See, she gives him quite specific and if Agris obeys, he goes down to Egypt, he spends the remaining 17 or so years of his life in the uh, desert of Nitria. And then he moves out to the more remote settlement called Kelia, and he supports himself as a scribe, a calligraphos. Uh, that was what educated monks would do, copy manuscripts in order to support themselves. And he lives with great personal austerity. He says, from the time that I took to the desert, I have not touched lettuce or any other green vegetable or any fruit or grapes or meat or a bath. Now, in the teaching of Evagrius we have two sides. On the one side he is an originist, deeply influenced by origin. 
he takes over from Origen all Origen's most daring speculations about the pre-existence of souls, about the pre-cosmic fall, about the final reconciliation or apocatastasis when even the devil will be saved. Now, Origen got into trouble for these speculations and long after his death at the Fifth Ecumenical Council in 553, he was condemned and so was Evagrius at that council or at a meeting that took place a little before the council. But Evagrius is also a disciple of the Cappadocian Fathers. And so there is that one side to Evagrius, his speculative theology. But there is another side. While he lives in the desert, he acquires much of the experiential wisdom of the desert and so we find in his writings a combination of originist speculation usually rather hidden because Evagrius knew this was controversial so it was only evident to those with eyes to see but on the other hand he incorporates the living experiential wisdom of the Desert Fathers. Evagrius possesses remarkable powers of psychological discernment. He's systematic. He's gifted with the ability to express his thought in sharp epigrammatic phrases. He organizes things methodically, presents in lucid, memorable terms the monastic tradition of self-knowledge. Now, Evagrius's speculations have been largely set on one side in the later tradition, but his practical spiritual teaching, all his lucid definitions, his methodical arrangement of material, this has had a lasting effect on the Christian East. And not only on the Christian East, one of his disciples was John Cassian, who later went to Rome and then to southern Gaul, and uh, the writings of Cassian, he wrote in Latin, uh, were very influential on St. Benedict, who recommends his monks to read Cassian. Cassian never mentions Evagrius, because Evagrius had become controversial, but um, the Evagrian teaching through Cassian, has lived on in the West as well as the East. Now, let's look a little then at the teaching of Evagrius. He works with the threefold scheme of which I spoke in my opening talk, whereby you have first the active life, then the contemplation of nature, and then thirdly, the contemplation of God. And he took much of this over from origin. The 
first stage, the active life, the struggle to overcome vice and acquire virtue. This begins, says Evagrius, with repentance. And here let us keep in mind the literal meaning of the Greek word metanoia or metania. It means change of mind. Many people think repentance is all bound up with a feeling of guilt over sin. Yes, that is part of repentance, but only part. The basic essence of repentance is not disgust with our sin, not feelings of guilt and shame. The basic essence of repentance is that we change our mind. Repentance is a new way of looking at ourselves, at our neighbor, and at God. And in this sense, repentance is not just negative, overcoming and rejecting sin. It is positive, looking at the world as God's world. Repentance in this way is not just looking down with gloom and depression at our own ugliness, but it is looking up with joy at the beauty of God. Repentance is not just to frown, but it is to smile. St. John Climacus, abbot of Mount Sinai in the seventh century says, uh, repentance is the daughter of hope and the denial of despair. So repentance is not just to see what's wrong with our life, but to see how it could be put right. If we think of the prodigal son, his repentance begins in exile when he came to himself and saw the futility and darkness of his life in exile, feeding the swine. But that moment of self-knowledge could have brought him to despair. So that wasn't the fullness of repentance, the moment of self-knowledge. Repentance, in the case of the prodigal son, only comes to its fullness when he says, I don't have to stay here in exile. I could go back to my father's home. And it's not enough just to feel things. Repentance means that you act on them. So the repentance of the prodigal it only comes to its fullness when he actually gets up and goes home. So you move in repentance from self-knowledge to new hope and then to action. So when we have Evagrius speaking of repentance as the start of the spiritual life, we have to include all of this in our vision. Judas, after he betrayed Christ, came to himself, but he didn't come to genuine repentance because self-knowledge in his case led him to despair and he went out and hanged himself. So that's not real repentance, to lapse into despair. But Peter, who three times denied Christ, did repent. 
he wept bitterly. That was the beginning. But his repentance came to its fulfillment when after the resurrection he was fishing on the lake with the other disciples and he saw the figure of Christ on the shore and instead of running away in shame he said it is the Lord and threw himself into the water and came back to Christ. That is repentance. Peter passed through the bitterness of tears but then he came to the joy of new hope and he didn't run away but he came back. So all of this we should have in mind when the fathers such as Evagrius speak of repentance a fresh vision, a new way of looking at things, to reverse the perspective, stand the pyramid on its head. All of this is what repentance means. And repentance leads on in Evagris's scheme to the struggle against sin within ourselves. And for this Evagrius speaks mainly in terms of a struggle against thoughts, against logismi. Thoughts usually have a negative sense in Evagrius. They mean evil impulses. And Evagrius singles out a list of eight evil thoughts. And with a certain adaptation, this becomes in the West the seven deadly sins. Evagrius is in many ways the father of our spirituality, Eastern and Western as well. Then this pursuit of the active life, living out of repentance, this struggle against evil thoughts leads on, and this is the culmination of the first stage in Evagrius, to what he calls apathia, which we might translate dispassion. Pathos means a state of passion, passion doesn't just mean emotion in Evagris's teaching, it means a sinful, disordered impulse. And through the active life, we purify the passions and become pure from passion. So apathia could be translated, if you liked, at passionlessness. But it doesn't mean our word apathy. Evagoras would have seen that as sinful. He mentions among the sinful impulses that it's not one of the eight evil thoughts, insensitivity, anesthesia, which is a bad thing. In, and he mentions, and this is one of the eight evil thoughts, akidia, accident which means an attitude of listlessness and sloth. So these are sinful things, but for him apathia means not 
indifference, not insensibility, and still less does it mean immunity from temptation, impeccability, because he believed right up to the end of our life we are still liable to temptation and can still fall into sin. Hey everybody, it's Tarzan Bonanno just hopping in to say thank you so much for listening to this episode of the OLTV podcast. If you enjoy what you're hearing, press the follow button and the notification button so you are properly notified of when each episode comes out. On top of that, if you want to get more involved, we have questions and polls on the Spotify version of the podcast. This way, we can hear what you guys are thinking about each episode and If you have any suggestions, we can move it through in further and newer episodes. Thank you so much. Now back to the show. But apathia signifies rather health of soul. Pathos is sickness. When we're freed from the passions, the soul is able to function freely as it should, fulfilling its own true nature. So apathia in Evagrius means reintegration, spiritual freedom. It's not static, but dynamic. An author much influenced by Evagrius in the 5th century, Saint Diadocus of Photici, talks about the fire of Apathia, and that brings out its positive dynamic character. St. John Cassian, transposing Evagris' teaching into Latin for a Western audience, uses the phrase purity of heart, puritas cordis, for Evagris' apathia. And that's a better word, because apathia has a negative appearance, even though it isn't negative. And apathia is not a scriptural term, whereas purity of heart is scriptural. As we, uh, Christ says in the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So apathia, which is originally a Stoic term in Greek philosophy, does come into Christian discourse through Evagrius, but it's better to think of it as purity of heart, or we can use the word dispassion which is my translation of it. But remember, it's positive. And Evagoras, in fact, emphasizes that it is very close to love, agape. He says agape is the offspring of apathia. So having ceased to lust, you are then able to love. Having overcome with God's grace the sinful negative impulses and evil thoughts within you, you are then free to approach Christ and to be filled with good thoughts. So remember then that apathia is supremely positive. It goes hand in hand with active creative love. That's Evagoras' vision of the first stage. 
And he would have considered that this stage goes right on to the end of life. We never pass beyond the need to repent. Another author in the Greek ascetic tradition, Mark the Monk, also known as Mark the Ascetic or Mark the Hermit, wrote a special treatise on repentance in which he insists that repentance is continual and goes on to our last breath. Evagrius would have agreed. There's a good story in the sayings of the Desert Fathers that illustrates this. A story told of Abba Sisoes. Evagrius doesn't mention this, but he may well have known Sisoes. I forget their exact dates. Certainly it's a story that fits into Evagrius's ascetic theology. Sisoes was dying. His disciples were gathered round him. He began speaking to certain people they couldn't see. Who are you talking to, said his disciples. And he replies, I'm speaking to the angels. They've come to fetch me. And I'm asking them to give me more time. What do you mean, said the disciples? Why do you want more time? Sisoe said, I am asking for more time to repent. Oh, you are holy and perfect. We all know that, say the disciples. You don't need to repent. And Sisoe replies, Truly, I do not know whether I have even begun to repent. And then he dies. And the whole room is filled with a splendor, a glory as of light. So if Sisoes, the great father of the desert, felt the need to go on repenting to the end of his life, that applies to us much more. Then we come to the second stage in Evagrius, and this is the stage of natural contemplation, the contemplation of nature. And he divides it into two levels. He uh, speaks of second natural contemplation, that's the lower level, which means the contemplation of the created world around us. And then he speaks of first natural contemplation, which means the contemplation of the bodiless ones, of the angels. So, first natural contemplation means listen to the frogs, and the second natural contemplation means listen to the angels. And angels like demons play an important part in Evagrius's world view. To illustrate the meaning of this natural contemplation, Evagrius tells a story about St. Anthony of Egypt. There came one day to visit Anthony in the desert one of the great philosophers of the time. And the philosopher said to Anthony, Father, how can you endure to live here in this horrid wilderness 
without the consolation of books. In fact, we are told by Athanasius that Antony was unlettered, which may mean he couldn't read or write, or at least it means he hadn't received any higher education. I love books, as you may see behind me um, here in my study, but and so I sympathize with the philosopher. But the philosopher receives this reply from Antony. Oh, philosopher, says Antony, my book is the world of nature, and whenever I wish, I can open this book and read in it about the marvelous works of God. So this is the first stage of natural contemplation. To treat nature as God's book. Saint Ephraim the Syrian, who was a contemporary of Evagoras, but certainly they never met, speaks of the two forms of scripture, the two words of God. There is the written word of God in Holy Scripture, in God's book, but then there is the other book, the other form of revelation from God and that is the book of nature and we are to praise God for his revelation in scripture but praise him also for his revelation in the world of nature around us. There's another story I recall told of a present day hermit on the holy mountain of Athos he has a cell at the top of a precipice facing out westward across the sea and it is his custom to go and sit on his balcony and watch the setting sun before he goes into the darkness of his chapel for his nightly vigil with the Jesus prayer. A disciple came to him, a young man, energetic and practical, and the old man made him sit and watch the sunset. And the second day he did the same, and the third the same. And the disciple became restless about this. And he said, Abba, yes, this is a very nice view, but why do we have to look at it every evening before our vigil service? What are you doing when you sit there looking at the setting sun? And the old man replied in Greek, Mazevo Elin, which could be translated, I am collecting material, or I am gathering fuel. Collecting material for what? For his coming inner prayer. Before he turns to explore God in the inner kingdom of the heart. The hermit looks out at the world of nature and apprehending the wonder of the world around us, he gathers material for his nightly prayer. That's 
part of what is meant by natural contemplation. But it also means recognizing the transitory character of the world round us. Yes, the world is beautiful, but this is a world of change, of decay, a fallen world that reveals God to us. But we have to say, yes, this is God, but God is above and beyond all this. And so we must use created things as a ladder of ascent. And we must pass from the second stage, natural contemplation, to the third stage, the knowledge of God, the vision of God, union with the Holy Trinity. And that, for Evagoras, is the highest stage. As he says, the perfection of the noose, that's the intellect, is immaterial knowledge, which he means, by which he means the vision of God. That's a slightly disturbing aspect of Evagrius's teaching. Love is the culmination of the first stage, agape. But the culmination of the third stage is gnosis, knowledge. So he seems to put knowledge above love. Though Gregory of Nyssa combines these two approaches by saying knowledge is turned into love. But of course by gnosis, uh, Evagoras doesn't mean scientific knowledge. He means religious knowledge. He means the vision of God what he calls theology, which is not academic study in libraries, but union with God in prayer. In a famous phrase, Evagrius says, if you are a theologian, you will pray truly. And if you pray truly, you are a theologian. I always used to quote that to my university students when I was teaching here in Oxford and say even if you are doing academic theology you must recognize that theology has no meaning if it's divorced from prayer. All theology in the end has to be mystical theology. Now at this third stage Evagrius believes that we must pass beyond all words, all images, all discursive concepts. He says that the intellect, the noose, is to become naked. It is to be free from all thoughts, not just from evil thoughts, but from all thoughts. When you are praying, says Evagrius, do not shape within yourself any image of the deity and do not let your intellect be stamped with the impress of any form but approach him who is not material in a non-material manner. And a little later he goes on to say prayer is the laying aside of thought. He didn't mean that as a definition of all prayer because he thought that 
we should most of the time pray, at any rate if we are monastics, uh, through the Psalter, through psalmody. Um, there wasn't in his day the developed divine office that we have today in monasticism, but the monks used to recite the Psalter, and that for Evagrius was the normal way of praying. But he believed that anyway, for some people there would be moments when they stopped using words and they simply dwelt in the presence of God without words, with stillness of the heart, in what he calls pure prayer. So that was what he meant when he said prayer is a laying aside of thoughts, a shedding of thoughts. The Cappadocian fathers apply to the understanding of God the apophatic approach, negative theology. God is beyond our understanding, therefore whatever affirmative statements we may make about God, we have to balance them with negative statements. And the negative statements take us deeper into the heart of the mystery. The negative statements act as a kind of jumping off point, a trampoline by which we leap up into the mystery of God. Now, the Cappadocians apply this to theology. Evagrius extends it in a more direct way to prayer and says that not just in our theology must we use the negative approach, but also in our prayer. We need apophatic prayer. We need to pass beyond the reasoning brain to a direct, intuitive, unitive understanding of God. The noose or intellect in Evagrius does not just mean the reasoning brain, the discursive reason. It means much more the higher faculty that we have, the power of inner vision, the power whereby we simply apprehend God. We do not just think about God, but we know him, we meet him. This is what he means by the intellect. So if we call Evagrius an intellectualist, um, we need to recognize he's using the word intellect or noose in a rather different sense from the way in which we employ it today. I have more to say about Evagrius, but I will put that in my next talk, when I shall come to compare him with Macarius. But I would like to end with a question. When Evagrius talks about this non-iconic prayer, this apophatic prayer, passing beyond words and images to an experience of direct unity, how is this possible? What is the practical methods that we can employ? so that we may transcend our reasoning brain. Evagrius doesn't really give us an answer. 
we need an answer. And what kind of answer can we give? I'll come back to that later. Goodbye for now. Thank you for listening to this talk from Callistos Ware. New lectures will be released every Thursday. If you'd like to see more content, consider being a subscriber on Spotify or at our Locals page. The link for that is in the description below. God bless.